Hello and welcome to another edition of the Unheard Podcast and this is going to be an unheard podcast like no other because those of you who did not see Aisha Hazarika on the sofa on Andrew Ma on BBC television on Sunday morning against Nigel Farage well I only you, uh, you were lucky it was it, I do not know how they were allowed to broadcast that in family hours because you were frightening what do you mean I was wow. frightening you you were on, a I woman on a mission you were you had your talking points about Nigel Farage and his toxic views and you were going to make them and you did and very well. I well, I, I just thought, you know, he's a man that has a platform. I'm a woman that can have a platform too. But um, of all the um, comments I had afterwards, obviously I'm a traitor to this country. I'm a terrible Muslim. I need to be deported, etc., etc. My favourite one was a UKIP MEP who said that I was a gobby woman, which I take as a badge of honour. So I'm now <laughs> getting T-shirts printed with uh, that gobby woman on it. Very good. Well, uh, just watch out, Tim. Obviously. Yeah. Well, I am. I'm, I've certainly seen you in a different. Be afraid. In a different be very mind. afraid. Um, but that wasn't uh, the biggest issue of the week in in British politics. Um, Brexit, of course, was always is nearly always the biggest issue in British politics. But on that program uh, that Aisha was on, we also had Alan Milburn, the former Labour minister and also now the former chair of the government's Social Mobility Commission, and he resigned. Um, in protest at what he says was a lack of government progress on social justice and social mobility issues. And uh, interestingly, it wasn't just him that resigned. Um, I thought, in a way, the more interesting resignation was Gillian mm. Shepherd, the former Tory education minister. The fact that she went with him in protest suggested that this was a was a was a deeper as a deeper problem. And we, we're going to come back to that, but. Um, We've got two guests um, today. Um, one of them, um, I hope, will be well known to um, unheard readers, uh, James Bloodworth. Hello, James. Hello. Uh, James has written some great pieces for us on poverty in Britain, and recently he was in Spain uh, looking at the Podemos movement and uh, it's as a radical socialist reaction to. They don't like being called left party, do they? But can I call them radical socialists? Do you think? Or um, would they probably object to that label? As I think. Well? I think some would mm. would would accept that label, but they're trying to do the thing of of beyond left and right, which yeah. um, I think they'll run out of road on that eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Manifesto looked pretty left wing to to me. Um, but James is a, a big writer on poverty and doesn't just look at it. Um, from an ivory tower he's immersed himself in trying to understand these issues and you've got a book coming out in the new year which tells the, the stories of your frontline experiences with poverty um, as a sort of a hidden reporter yeah so the book uh, is called hired and it's out on the 1st of march next year and it basically i went undercover for six months um, in different areas of the country um, working in the low pay economy and looking also at the at the economic and so, social social changes in those towns I visited over the over the, the past 30 40 50 years well we're looking forward to the book and we're looking forward to your contribution to today as well and uh, our second guest is Ed Davis um, welcome Ed hi then um, Ed is from an organization I was associated with in the past the Center for Social Justice and um, you um, have had a busy week as well responding to uh, not just um, the Alan Milburn report, but also a Joseph Roundtree report, which said that uh, for the first time, I think in 20 years, we're seeing some 
um, controversial but key poverty indexes uh, yeah. is going in the wrong direction. Yeah, this is it. I mean, there's been a lot actually on poverty this week, and in many ways, I'm just thrilled that we're finally talking about it rather than Brexit or something else. So it's. In that sense, it's a good week, but the figures don't look so good. And so actually, there's a sort of real call for action in all that as well. well. Thank you very much for joining us today. And in terms of figures that don't look good, occasionally a figure comes across your desk and it really um, knocks you sideways. And I had that um, um, last night. And Aisha, this is, these are Ipsos Mori numbers from around the world that ask people, um, is the world going in the right direction? And only 13 one three percent um said yes and for the united kingdom it was just nine percent how, how would you vote in that um survey would you be someone who said because i would definitely say the world is going in the right direction overall because you look at world bank numbers on poverty and hunger and um child um, mortality although we have problems in the west the world as a whole is making a lot of progress but that's not how people feel in their everyday lives. You know, if you're one of the people, for example, that James has been, um, you know, following and tracking and you're working really, really hard, but you can't make ends meet, you know, you're worried about the future of your children, you know, you're literally worried that you can't get food on the table. It's going to be of little comfort to you that, you know, infant mortality rates across the world might be improving. People feel what they um, experience. And I do think there is a... But that's not 70% of people in Britain, is it? I think a lot of people in Britain do feel pretty depressed about what lies ahead. I think... I think this squeeze that we've seen on living standards, which has happened since the financial crash, I don't think you can overstate how real this is for people and the fact that you know people feel it very acutely. And it's also, I think, people don't think about politics that much. Most normal people aren't that bothered about politics. But I do feel, pe- I do think people feel there's a bit of a crisis in political leadership. A lot of people. I know we disagree about this, and this is not about Brexit. But I think a lot of people well, are do you worried. Which aspect do we disagree with? Brexit. Oh, bre- oh, Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. But I think there is anxiety as well mm. about um, on both sides. You know, you know, depending on who you how you mm. voted, but also the country. And go back to my Nigel Farage spat. The country feels very divided at the moment. <coughs> I d- it doesn't feel like it's at a particularly happy, optimistic place at the moment. Um, James Bloodworth, how? how I noticed um, Aisha didn't answer my question on how she would have voted. Oh, I would have voted to say things do feel like they're going backwards and you, getting you, worse. So you're one of the yes. overwhelming majority. Yes. Yeah. Okay. How, how would you have you voted? Um, I would. I would probably have also voted to say that things I think are uh, regressing to some extent. Um, I say largely, first of all, because global instability. It feels more unstable globally than any than at any time since the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that does. I think that will have been reflected in people's attitudes in this country. Um, I think the election of Donald Trump, for example, has created this feeling of instability. So, um, whereas, you know, if you look at the statistics in isolation, the world does seem to be getting better, but the instability creates the feeling that all of that could be kind of thrown up in the air. So, I mean, you have a standoff with, nu- with North Korea mm. um, over nuclear weapons. I mean, if that, that has the potential um, for, you know, to bring about complete catastrophe, you have the ongoing migration crisis I hope no one's tuned into this podcast they're already <laughs> feeling a bit down at sort of a <laughs> yeah there, there are kind of all these flashpoints you have a, a more aggressive Russia in Europe yeah. and it, it just creates this feeling that democracy is more fragile than perhaps it's been for, for many years coupled with uh, domestic issues like the stagnation of, um, of, of incomes for, mm. su- for such a long period of time 
the turmoil, potential turmoil of Brexit, it feels a bit like um, we're, we're closer to the precipice, if you like, um, than, than perhaps previously. And talk, talk about close to the precipice. When I was in America uh, last year uh, following the, the Trump circus, um, I think the stat that most shocked me, um, it was on the front of the Atlantic magazine, I don't know if you remember it, but um, it was how many Americans could not find $400 if they were hit by an emergency. Um. And it was, it was about half. So, you know, we know that industry works on this sort of just-in-time delivery system where, you know, the components arrive at the time they need it on the assembly line. But half of America, are, you know, their, their, their household finances basically cannot cope with a dislocation. And I suggested to the Times when I saw this, I said, let's ask YouGov to do that in Britain. And the numbers were pretty much identical. You know, that half of the country... So I may be slightly in a different place from Aisha and, um, you know, I don't quite recognise a lot, such a large percentage maybe are struggling as much as, as she's described. Um, but clearly people are, a lot of people have no reserves, yeah, nothing, I, nothing to fall back on. I think one thing I found um, researching the book was that you can just about get by on many of the job, like low pay economy jobs. Um, but if, if you're hit by some piece of bad fortune um, or say you need to do something like a tooth comes out and you need to pay to go to the dentist, you can immediately get knocked, knocked down and it can, it can mess everything up. Um, just one kind of crisis or emergency um, and I think that is that kind of um, as, a, as a phenomenon is much more widespread than, than politicians have perhaps realised I, I completely um, agree with James and when I've gone to food banks with MPs for example what a lot of the people at food banks say is that the people that are coming to them it's often there because they've just had like a bit of a hiccup like one wage packet has been late Um, and then that has thrown everything out of kilter and they sort of say actually people can often be a sort of one wage packet away from having to go to food banks because there's nothing in reserve there's no spare cash there's no savings everyone is very precarious and I think that level of anxiety is fueling of course this pessimism Um, so Ed uh, at Davis from the <laughs> Centre for Social Justice. Um, a lot of territory we've already covered before bringing you in, but I'm going to ho- I'm going to put the question to you as well. Um, h- how would how would you answer it? Is, yeah. is the world getting better or worse? I'd like to be the optimist in all this, actually, mm. and looking certainly over a long longer period of time than the last few years. Actually, all the objective data is great. Thinking globally, that disease is down, child mortality is down. Uh, absolute poverty is down death in war is down these the over thinking in a sort of a longer period actually I think we're in a it's it's a fantastic time to be alive Mm. that said there is obviously some real pessimism grounded in real life uh, and as you were saying how people feel uh, their lives are at the moment Um, and we've got to address that Mm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean sort of objectively that things are awful but actually if people are feeling it it's real and you've clashed a little bit, or the Centre for Social Justice have clashed a little bit with Roundtree, Joseph Roundtree mm. Foundation. They use a relative yeah. measure of poverty, which means that if the median income rises, yeah. actually you could get more people in poverty. But the kind of poverty that Aisha and James have been describing, mm. you know, people who really you know, do run out of money before the week's over, mm. um, that's real, isn't it? And... It, and, and Given that we have inflation running at three, four percent, and benefits have been frozen, you have uh, you have more people 
who are going to be facing that. What what kind of percentage of British people would you sort of suggest really are poor in absolute terms? Is that, is that, can, can you give a number? I don't know. I wouldn't want to put a, a no. figure on it. To be I suppose that the, the issue that we take with the, the relative poverty measure yeah. is that essentially if we introduce a minimum wage, more people are in poverty by that measure. If we have a recession, more people are out of poverty. If everyone doubles their income, there are exactly the same number of people in poverty. It's just not a good measure. And the reality is, is that people's lives are more complex than money. Um, and actually, the factors that bring poverty are not just money. Of course, money is a part of that absolutely but actually if I am a child growing up in an abusive household if I give my parents 40 pounds more it doesn't take away the abuse if I am someone starting out in my career who doesn't have the skills and education to get on I'm going to be stuck in low-paid work I need the education side first and so if we just measure money and we just talk about money we will never actually tackle the that, things that people that, need that's in their true, lives but if inflation is at three percent and milk and everything is getting dearer yep. and you, your benefit is effectively going uh, going down hmm. you have no margin for error you, already yeah. and what do you do in those circumstances yeah and I, you know I'm, I'm all in favour of generosity in the welfare system as long as the welfare system then does encourage work and hmm. gives people the skills they need and builds up and I think that's a really important point that this isn't just about saying you know you've got enough money get on with it hmm. but it's about saying actually even if you don't have enough money do you have the skills to get on is your life in a circumstance I mean at the moment death from addiction is, a, is an all-time high and you look across to the states at the moment an opioid addiction is absolutely rampant mm. and actually giving them a bit more money uh, you know a bit more state support does not tackle that addiction and it's, it's relatively small proportion of poor people though on most most of the money that you would give to people who are struggling would go on essentials sure sure but I'm just saying that in any individual case whether it be you know a difficult family background you've had a poor education and actually poverty and, and education are mm. hand in hand if you are poor you will go to a bad school the data seems to show now and so actually you are stuck in that situation until we tackle that and look at the education data as well as the money data you're never going to improve it but ultimately if you are on the breadline then money does matter and also it's not just people absolutely at the bottom you know who are um, you know, falling through the sort of net. It's actually up through the ranks as well. I mean, when I was going around the country doing my um, stand-up tour, I remember going to, I can't remember the place, but there was a woman and she was a nurse and she was doing shifts behind the bar at the theatre in the evening. And I was like, you're a nurse? And she was like, I know, I cannot make ends meet at the moment. And it's not, there is the absolute basics for you know, a roof over your head, some food in your stomach, etc., etc. But also, people have ambitions for their lives, and they have ambitions for their children. You know, the concept of social mobility is actually a really basic terms. You want your kids to have the chance to do better than than you do, and a lot of people are just finding that that's not the case at the moment. And um, you're right. You know, it's it's much more complex. I mean, an absolute base level, money does matter actually. And, you know, we've had a lot of discussion in this country about universal credit. One of the problems, I th hopefully they're looking to fix it, but was just that time lag of getting your benefits could throw your life into absolute sort of chaos. But moving up your hierarchy of needs as a human being, you also, social mobility is, mu is much more, as you, as you say, than just the absolute basics. It's like, you know, can your kid get a, get a house, you know, near you? Can they get a 
job that will be fulfilling for them that mm. will allow them some time to spend with their family and like maybe have a holiday every year and be able to buy their family nice presents at Christmas that type of thing yeah I, one thing I, I noticed um, yeah researching the book was it wasn't just a question of lack of money sometimes it was social mobility almost within um, within the working class so there's less scope in many traditionally working class jobs today to go from the factory floor say and and move up the company uh, many of these jobs in the first place you're on a, a nine-month contract and you're you're automatically kind of dismissed after this nine-month period um, you're on a zero hours contract so you mm. you don't really know day to day whether you're coming or going you can't do things like get a mortgage on on that kind of uh, contract very easily and then also outside of work you've seen the disappearance of, of things like social clubs pubs even even to some extent the breakdown of family and the disappearance of uh, the retreat at least do you of think the left can, do you think the left can talk about the breakdown of the family now james because it was a bit of a taboo for a while wasn't it that the, you were kind of making a judgment on people's lifestyle choices was, ha- was certainly how it was put in america for a period but we all know for common sense really um raising kids is hard and raising kids on your own is incredibly hard and if you can keep the family together you're you're doing an enormous social good and but i i've, I've sensed that you're half of politics for i know right left are um, not always helpful but you've been reluctant to talk about this i mean I, I i do find it's a difficult subject to talk about anyway partly because i mean i wouldn't want to go back to the 20th century where you had lots of predominantly women stuck in relationships they didn't want to be in and didn't feel like they could leave because it was difficult to get a divorce or whatever um, but then at the same time, it, it is another form of atomization which, which impacts working class communities when um, you don't necessarily have those strong pillars. The family is sometimes one of those strong pillars that's also disappeared. So life is even more kind of in flux than it was perhaps, but, um, but than on, it perhaps could be. But on that, I mean, I just think this is a sort of a false flag because the truth is divorce happens everywhere in upper class families just look at the royal family you know right through to working class families often you know families come in all different shapes and sizes and increasingly oh, come on there's, there's more a bit size. of a cop out I think yeah. I don't I think it's yeah. important to say that actually yeah. family breakdown is far more prevalent in our poorer societies and our richer societies I mean by multiples yeah. but I think the, the partly because of the economic pressure they're under you know you, you, yeah, can't, you can't detach these factors but, but also when you when you have family breakdown and if you've got money and resources, mm. then the family can can still be protected mm-hmm. and things like that. So I I I'm, I feel very strongly that this is just a bit of a kind of a, a cul-de-sac in this um, in this sort of discussion. I, I think there's far more important I, things I, in terms of um, looking at this poverty and pest. Go get her. If, right, I, if I may her. push back quite strongly <laughs> on this, actually. Um, so at the moment, for example, we're having uh, in the UK. There's a green paper that's come out on child and adolescent mental health services. The single biggest reason that a child presents to uh, CAM services uh, is family uh, breakdown. It's 50% now presenting for that reason. It is, it's huge. The biggest reason a child will suffer mental health problems now is an absent father. Um, it matters. It really matters. And if you are growing up in a household with one parent, you are seven times more likely to be reliant on the state than if you're growing up in a household with two parents. Now, that's not a, that is not a moral judgment. That is a poverty argument that says family is important. It matters. So to the future of children, having a stable home is important. And I think, just, if I can just take it one step further as well, I think some of this comes down to a culture of the age that says, it's very individual. It's about me. 
um, and actually I don't want to belong to anything bigger it's not just family it's you know rates of uh, adherence to to faith groups to unions to political parties to anything bigger than self is going down and down and down and down and the thing is when you then hit a crunch you are not part of something bigger you are reliant on yourself and actually that breakdown of community that self is important is really damaging and, and the family and is just one example of and that. a big part of all of this though comes I'm afraid back down to money because I do think lots of stuff in terms of community breakdown, in terms of the stuff you were talking about, education and skills, there just isn't enough money going into a lot of this stuff as well. I mean, in an ideal world, everyone would be married, everyone would be happily ever after. That just doesn't happen. And I'm afraid that is the reality of where we are. In terms of child mental health issues, it's a huge issue money we need much more money going into mental health services and i mean the government's just announced this thing about counselors in schools but i just think but we spend six thousand pounds on dealing with the problems that family breakdown gets for every pound we spend on trying to prevent it and it feels like we can throw money at this problem all we like but actually if we can try and prevent it if we can actually build up this idea that commitment is a good thing i mean at the moment there's a relationships and sex education consultation going on and uh, there's never been the idea of commitment in that, that I part just of the curriculum. The, I just think that's so not where the argument is in terms of looking at like poverty and um, and pessimism, especially when the, you've the got... The data says when otherwise. You've got I, 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 we're not going to resolve the issue <laughs> yeah, of family yeah, I, I wanted to cover other aspects of it, because there certainly are. Other, I think we can all agree on that. And um, James, if I come back to, to you, um, some people sort of explain a lot of the Brexit-Trump... You know, other phenomena we've seen in Europe in the context of austerity, um, for example, and hope and believe that um, you know, as the uh, 2008 crash fades into memory, we're going to move away from populism because that was the driving cause. But of course, we have rapid technological change, which is getting rid of a lot, abolishing a lot of the jobs that, um, particularly, I think, for men. Um, used to get their financial and identity, uh, a lot of their identity um, from. We're seeing globalisation uh, with China and others competing um, so that places like Port Talbot um, no longer have economic, um, have a, an economic rationale. What's your sense? Are we, are we going to see the problems that you're on the front line seeing getting worse? Is it going to stay the same? What's your pessimism or optimism levels about that in particular? Um, I, yeah, I don't want to be... T- maybe it's just I'm a pessimist, but I feel like it's it's maybe <laughs> going to get worse. Partly because, I mean, there was the, the statistics came out a few few weeks ago showing that there's going to be this continued stagnation of, of wages in, until the 2020s, I think it was. Um, we've already had the longest period of, of wage stagnation for, for several centuries. And, and automation... Um, automation will impact those with lower skilled jobs first um, which I mean it, it kicks people when they're down to some extent so in South Wales we're coming well, after a lot of white collar jobs soon as well yeah um, lower order clerical I mean things. yeah but I, th- but I think the biggest risk is is low skilled occupations the, sa- the same occupations that it's already easier to do things like outsource um, with so I was in South Wales last week and you've already got a situation there where it's already to some extent a post work environment in some places because the industry that left in the in the 1980s hasn't sufficiently been replaced, and then it's those communities. What that levels of unemployment are you sort of or worklessness are you seeing in communities like that? Um, I can't remember the exact figure. It's it's higher than anywhere else in in England. I mean, you've got in South Wales is 
about the poorest part of the UK, isn't it? I think mm. it's Cornwall and... Yeah, and there, there are um, lots of social problems. So one in six people on antidepressants yeah. in, in Blano Gwent, in, in, in that region, in the valleys, uh, which is one in six people. That I mean, that's, that's shockingly high. Um, and it's these, these regions which, are, if we don't act, which are going to potentially be... Uh, bear the brunt of, of automation um, before wealthier areas and, I, and there will obviously be a political backlash because we've seen that to some extent with Brexit. South Wales voted uh, voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. Um, partly it was a kind of a kickback against what people see as the establishment. Um, partly paradoxically it was a it was a reaction against kind of Thatcherite economics mm. um, to some extent. So you so you I'd met people who would often blame the disappearance of industry on the EU um, because it kind of roughly tied in with our membership of the, the EEC. So I can't see it getting um, uh, any any better in the immediate future anyway. Um, the, the Tory government here in Britain, um, Ed, was accused at the weekend of um, being focused too much on Brexit and um, that was the explanation for um, a, a lack of progress. First of all, would you agree that there is a lack of progress from this government at the moment on these issues? I think you, you can point to individual things that are progress. Actually, I mean, we mentioned UC in the budget earlier. Overall, overall though, without going through, I don't want to go through a menu of policy items. I'd like to see a lot more vision on social justice. Mm. I'd like that from the top. Yeah, I mean, that's why I work for the Centre for Social Justice. <laughs> so, so, yeah, exactly, you know, that's, that, that's because, absolutely cause, right. Because my view is, and um, I think maybe even Aisha and I could agree on this one, we'll Ooh. see, um, <laughs> is maybe Brexit is distracting ministers a bit. But there are things that you could do tomorrow yeah. with a flick of a switch that do not require any ministerial time. You could stop giving middle class tax cuts and you could uprate benefits, for example. You could say, get rid of the treasury rules that mean that local authorities cannot borrow and uh, so that they can build houses and so that we won't be paying the massive housing benefit bills in the future. Because of treasury short termism, there's a, there's a lock on that. There's a whole range of things, I think, that are obvious. It's just about political will. And at the moment, Theresa May is not fulfilling those great words that she uttered on the steps of Downing Street. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea what Minister's Diaries look like, so I can't speak to the Brexit side of it. But I, I would absolutely agree with you that there are really simple things they can and should be doing. And there are bits and bobs going on. I mean, we were really pleased to see a commitment to housing first to, mm. to try and end homelessness in the budget. And it's something that's not going to get a lot of headlines. Yeah. And it's been a push for a while, but it's got over the line and it's happening. So there are things you can do like that. Yeah. And I think there's a real uh, an onus on individual ministers to own their briefs and say, right, in the area I'm working in, what can I do? What, what, can I, what change can I make? And I think that that's exciting as well I think we're in a situation where we can do that uh, and particularly you know there's I accept that the, the political maths in the UK now means that actually legislation's hard um, but there are Good plenty of things you parliament can do. for well, those listening from, well, from abroad yeah. I don't know I mean but you know politics all over the world is hard but actually there are things you can do without legislation there are plenty of small ideas sitting around in departments that, mm. that could be picked up and run with and I'd like to see a lot more of that what would, what would you be if, uh, if you had control of number 10 and 11 for a few weeks, James, what would you, what would be your kickoff projects? Um, in some ways, going back to, on the social mobility question, I think sometimes we obsess too much on social mobility. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that to sound a kind of traditional left-wing dismissal of social mobility in favour of equality. I think, though, that the political kind of classes over the past 20 years, it's, all, it's been about you go to university, we should try and get more people to go to university, and again, I think that's that's quite a quite a positive thing. 
Um, but then if you if you don't do that, I mean, we talk with with the grammar school debate. It's all all about poor but bright kids. We have to make sure poor but bright kids can get on in life. Again, I think that's a good thing. But what about those people who aren't necessarily academically gifted, who who want to do um, something skills based? I mean, I don't think we we focus anywhere near enough on those people in, in, in terms of investing in skills, in terms of in apprenticeships, uh, partly because the jobs aren't there anymore, of course. Uh, but I think that creates a certain kind of resentment. If you live in a smaller town, if you don't go off to university, almost almost by osmosis, our culture t- seems to imply to you that you're you're not you're not as important and I don't think that was necessarily true in say the mid 20th century when it was va- when to be there was a, a certain amount of respect attached to a working class job I think that's very true I mean I we are in a lather of agreement Tim who knew who knew um, I mean I think just hold on to that family disagreement <laughs> yeah I think I think Brexit has not just paralyzed the government now I think the truth is my friends who are working government as civil servants have said to me the run-up to the EU referendum created a paralysis as well in many government departments. So I think government has been stagnant for quite a long time now. And these issues are very tricky. You know, no one government can come and sort of, you know, wave a magic wand. Social mobility and all these things are entrenched over many, many generations. More can be done on the margins. Oh, absolutely. And I think Theresa May, in this, you know, difficult situation she's got at the moment, I think if she was willing to actually reach out to to other parties and even within her own party and say, right, who's got some good ideas now? Let's let's see what we can do now. What is within our sphere of influence? I think she would get a lot of credit and I think she would get a lot of support. Do you think Labour would play ball? You've got a very wounded Prime Minister, a government almost like looks like it's tottering in a way. Mm. Why would you help give it an agenda? Well, you have to be really patriotic well, rather than partisan. To I do think that. if Just she was big enough to make an offer on specific mm. issues, particularly around poverty and social justice, I think the Labour Party would um, get behind her. And there's a lot of, weirdly, there's these, these interesting alliances, not just on Brexit issues, but I was very moved in our parliament um, this week two big figures from different parties, the right-wing party, the Conservatives, Heidi Allen, and a man called Frank Field from the Labour Party, both very committed to social justice, both very, you know, connected in terms of their mission, which is to do some stuff now. In fact, um, Heidi Allen was actually in tears in the House of Commons, Mm. recounting some of the stories of her constituents, which sort of looped us back to the beginning of this podcast about the pessimism Mm. they feel. So I think, you know, we're in such a sticky place with British politics right now. It'd be incredibly refreshing for somebody senior in the government to say, right, what can we do? If, if I can push back a little bit again on that, I th- uh, Theresa May did exactly that after the election and there was a sort of spoof video that went round of Jeremy Corbyn showing her his manifesto. And I know that we published an article shortly after that saying, actually, here are three things that were in both of your manifestos that you could get on with. And actually, interestingly, Housing First was one of them for homelessness, so that's that's happening. But there are others, like the idea of breathing space for serious personal debt that was in every party manifesto that, that actually we're not seeing any support from. Mm. It's been interesting that also fixed or betting terminals, we're getting there. This is a real problem with gambling, particularly in our mm. poorer communities. But getting different parties around the table, we have found incredibly hard, even though they all agree on it. Well, I think the people who are in government have got the power. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has got zero power mm. right now. He's in opposition. But I genuinely think that, you know, people talk about, oh, let's have less punch and duty politics. Let's try and change the tone of politics. This could be a movement, actually, for people to come together. Because I think across I all the parties... I the Grenfell Tower tried to do, yeah. perhaps one of the most 
evocative, horrible tragedies in British public life. And I thought there was a moment there that could have been um, seized. We're going to have to finish in a second because we were over 30 minutes. So this will be our longest podcast, but the conversation's been fascinating. I just want to put the uh, a boot on the other foot just for a, for a moment to you two. Because... Um, <coughs> Do you have much awkwardness? You look at all the spending priorities that Labour went into at the last election, like um, tuition fees and pensioner um, benefits. Um, I've forgotten the, th- the third um, key one, uh, just, just for a second, but they're very much actually about the middle classes. I think yeah. tuition fees certainly... Uh, I mean, in principle, I like the idea of free education for all. It's just I wouldn't have it as a priority now, mm-hmm. especially when they... I think they didn't promise to... Uh, remove the benefit. Cap- yeah, no, there was nothing for people really on, on welfare. All the benefits were for, you know, like like the, almost like the Daily Mail caricature of, um, you know, the Islington North London Labour well, voter. Well, and if you, if you judge right. a person where the money yeah. is, this was but not pro Interestingly, the same people were still calling them dirty communists as well. <laughs> and at the yeah, same probably time. people so like yeah, me. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You, can, you can have it both ways. But I, I do think there's a big thing in that. And actually, I, I agree with, with James. I would like to see. Look, in an ideal world, we'll have tons of cash and we can everything could be free, but that's not going to happen, obviously. I would much prefer to see money... If I had to make a choice, I'd prefer to see money invested in very early years intervention yeah. because I think I that... Agree again. Um, makes I think, a huge I think we all agree on that, wouldn't we? Yeah. yeah. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> and we must end before James Coney, our producer, pulls the plug on us for running on too long. So um, thank you very much, um, everyone, today. Um, we managed to stop fighting over the family <laughs> issue. Um, nearly, um, I thought... Um, we almost had a family breakdown. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the Aisha from Sunday morning potentially um, coming out. But uh, uh, really good to have you, Ed. And um, if people want to know more about the Centre for Social Justice, they should go to the Centre for Social Justice.org.uk. Sounds right? about right, yep. yeah. And obviously, if they want to know more about you, they've got to come to Unheard, James, and some of your writings. But... Um, your book will it be online or will you have to buy it in the normal way uh, you'll have to buy it in the normal way quite right in all good bookstores and yeah. it'll be on Kindle as well okay excellent thank you, well, thank you all for listening and um, if you enjoy Unheard's podcast and there are others um, some short uh, pieces where we um, interview uh, random guests and then also a regular documentary where we look at a topic in depth if you find those on your regular podcast provider and rate them that helps them move up the charts and therefore become more known to people and more people listen to them and if if you can do that that would be an enormous help but from now from Aisha and me goodbye goodbye bye